HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And today... I hope you guys listened to last week's show. In fact, you should listen to these together because... um, uh, Anyway, today we're going to talk about water and food production. And uh, last week we talked about the merger between uh, JBS and Cargill. And that may seem kind, kind of a stretch to connect the two, but it is... Uh, they're uh, all interconnected, as is every aspect of uh, food production is connected with our water sources. So today we will be speaking. I'm really excited and, and proud to have um, this guest. Uh, her name is Brooke Barton, and she is the Senior Director of Series Water Program, directing the organization's research and engagement with investors and corporations on the financial risks and opportunities related to water scarcity and quality. Brooke specializes in analyzing how large food and beverage companies are addressing water risks in their operations and agricultural supply chains. She is the author and co-author of numerous reports, including the excellent, which I just read, Feeding Ourselves Thirsty, How the Food Sector is Managing Global Water Risks, and the series Aqua Gauge, a framework for 21st century water risk management and water and climate risks facing U.S. corn production. Um, These are all so intricately interconnected that you really can't talk about agriculture without talking about water supply supplies, water regulations, water law. Um, and uh, it seems to be that it's um, you know painfully lacking in conversations about food and food production as we go forward into the 21st century. So welcome to the show, Brooke. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Hi, Katie. Yes, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, I so enjoyed having you on my panel uh, last year at South by Southwest Eco. I, you have never been far from my thoughts, darling. <laughs> 
<laughs> you are just such a smart, smart guest and such a great, um, such a great contributor to uh, the thoughts on those panels about sustainability that um, and you know managing scale and whatever else we were talking about. It was, it was, you know, I learned a lot from you just from doing the panel. Anyway, I think we should start by you should explain to us what is Ceres, what is the group that you work for, and why would they write this report or any of these other reports? Great question. Yeah, so Ceres is a nonprofit advocacy organization, and we were formed about 25 years ago in the wake of the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Um, I'm kidding. You know, at that time, you know, that was really a clarion call for the environmental community to maybe send a little bit more focus on corporate responsibility and Mm -hmm. behavior on these issues. But but I think probably more importantly for the founding of Ceres, it it really provoked a lot of soul-searching by institutional investors um, who are asking themselves, how could their whole business model be premised on profiting from companies that were wreaking this kind of destruction? And, and maybe also, you know, how could they be influencing corporate, um, corporate management to really uh, build the business case for environmental sustainability and how, show how profitability and responsibility can go hand in hand, although obviously we know it it doesn't always. So Ceres yeah. was founded by this, this group of investors. Um, and, you know, since then we've grown uh, from a very small organization to a membership base of about 100 institutional investors, pension funds. You know, together these investors have about $13 trillion under, um, you know, collective management. So it's a lot of wow. money concerned about these issues, concerned about water scarcity, concerned about climate change. You know, one of our big focus areas is the sustainability of the food sector. Right. And you're obviously you're the senior director on water management. And so let, let's talk a little bit about the report that you published in May, which, um, you know, got, I think, quite a bit of interest, at least I hope it did on Wall Street, if not uh, in other sectors. Um, it was called Feeding Ourselves Thirsty, How the World, How the Food Sector is Managing Global Water Risk. And, and um, in that uh, report, you analyzed um, how many companies? About 100 and something? Uh, we looked at 37 of the largest. Oh, sorry. Okay, 37 beverage and meat companies. Yeah, no. Right. Um, it's a very consolidated sector, so you really don't actually have to look at that many of them. <laughs> and and Brooke, give, give us give people an idea of who those big players are in case they're not that familiar. I mean, the meat sector obviously like Smithfield, Tyson, Purdue, yeah, JBS. Yeah. But there's I mean, the, Archer, the Daniel, Midland. That, you know, in the meat sector are of course Smithfield for pork and Purdue and Tyson for chicken and JBS for beef and, and now pork, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, you know, we looked at the big agribusiness grain companies, Cargill and Bungie and um, uh, ADM, and then, you know, the consumer products companies, uh, the folks that, the brands that people are more familiar with at the grocery store, whether it's Kraft or Dr. Pepper um, or Molson, um, you know, these companies uh, are farthest away from farmers uh, by and large, but they have a tremendous amount of influence. Uh, and their consumers, of course, increasingly care. So, mm-hmm. so those, you know, it's really the it's really what people like to call big food. These these companies uh, make up most of what's uh, publicly traded for the food sector. Um, you know, in the investment uh, indexes, and you know, we looked at them because hey, we have to recognize that um, agricultural water use, food sector water use, is a tremendous uh, piece of of, sort of our overall set of water challenges and. If you look at the extended, you know, agricultural supply chain of, of companies like this globally, it's you know it's something like seventy percent of total water use. Wow. Uh, agricultural water pollution is, um, you know, a major source of impairment of, of certainly rivers and lakes in our our country, but also yeah. elsewhere. 
Um, so so these, this sector has um, a lot of responsibility. Um, they have a lot at stake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have incredibly compelling business reasons for, for that to care about these issues. It's not really just some kind of Good Samaritan discussion. And, you know, we found that um, water shortages, regulatory issues, they're negatively affecting the food um, food sector already, you know, and it, and it kind of plays out in, in five different ways. You've got, uh, you know, risks that are operating at the food, at this level of, of factories and manufacturing. A lot of these companies don't own farms, so, mm-hmm. so there, it's really about um, their their factories, their, their beverage facilities, but also their agricultural supply chains and how they can influence down to the farm level. And, and the issues are, are huge. Um, they're yeah. mounting, they're manifesting everywhere you go around the world. Um, you know, the first one we really focused on is this no- notion that, um, you know, there's growing competition for water everywhere you look. Um, yes. Because our populations are growing, um, we are uh, feeding more people, we're feeding people a different diet that's more water-intensive. Um, there's a lot of encroachment between, you know, and competition between urban areas and agricultural areas for water. All these things put a lot of pressure on companies that for a long time have, you know, taken for granted that, that they would be able to get cheap, free water um, for their for their businesses that the farmers they source from wouldn't really ha- be under a lot of pressure around water supplies, but that's you know that's really changing, and it's changing um, very rapidly. I mean that was the changing, yeah. that, that was my takeaway from the report was that this this uh, these issues are are sort of looming up over these companies without them. I mean you made the point that um, relatively few of the companies had any kind of. Um, you know, either had a, you know somebody who was in charge of thinking about this on their company board, or you know, in their management structure. Um, you know, uh, many of them had not uh, even created a plan to manage or mitigate water-related um, issues. Can you talk a little bit about some of the companies that are, like, where did they? You had a scale, like from one to a hundred, upon which you know these companies were uh, uh, graded in various categories, and um, yeah. I, I was fascinated to see how low overall. The scores were, but so who were the who were the good guys and who were the bad guys in that sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, you know, we we scored these companies on a, a one to one hundred point scale, as you said, and you know, we were we were looking at were, uh, you know, it fell into kind of four categories. You know, um, risk management. Do you know are these companies evaluating their the impacts they have in their operations and in their risk and in their supply chains on water risk? Um, are they, um, you know, do they have good governance and oversight and management of these issues? Um, are they taking action to set goals and targets and invest in water efficiency uh, in their own operations? And then are they working with farmers on, on these issues on the ground? You know, that's really where the opportunity is. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, farmers really can't take one more arbitrary demand from from big food. They really need support and partnership. And, and that's really what we were focused on. And, you know, and, and sadly, the, the the scores you know showed us that there's there's a lot of a lot of work to be done. There are some real pockets of leadership that I can talk about. But you know, if you look across those four industries, you know, agribusiness, meat, beverage, food, um, the the companies that really were not showing up in terms of any kind of leadership were you know in the meat sector and yeah. to some degree also the ag products companies. You know, the average score in the meat. Um, uh, sector was was um, nearly single digit, um, and and it really has to do with you know a, a lot, lack of transparency by these companies. Right. Um, 
be in the, you know their distance from the consumer um the the beverage companies the coca-colas and the nestle's of the world are getting a lot more scrutiny from their from their consumers um i think that message is starting to trickle down to the you know the, the their their suppliers the mm-hmm. you know cargills and bungies of the world but by and large um a lot of these companies do seem to still be very much asleep at the wheel and really uh, depending on a business model that assumes water will continue to be super cheap and and boundless in its volume and access, and, and we know that's changing. And, and so I think there is a real lag time uh, between you know some companies recognizing this and, and really you know shifting their approach and, and taking a more responsible tact. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I, I have this note here that your you know your report showed that very few take um, w- water management issues uh, seriously, and 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 it's and it is also true that changing infrastructure or practices or or even some of the locations for where they do business. I mean, you made a point of um, in the report that Coca Cola had decided to scuttle plans for building a plant in India because the local farmers were saying, "Hey, we don't have enough water for our crops. You're not going to come in here and take water for freaking Coca Cola." You know, so, I mean, uh, Coke actually was one of the companies that I think rated higher than most, in fact, in terms of water leadership, which I guess would make sense given what they sell. But um, are, how about shareholders? I mean, how much information, um, like if I own shares in a company like that, uh, I, I think I would want to see that as part of the, you know, the, the forecast plans for the company, you know, going forward. What what kind of role do shareholders play in, in um, forcing companies to adopt this or do they even get any education on these matters at all? Yeah, no, it's a really great question. And, and I think, you know, what we're starting to see is that the tide is turning where more and more um, institutional investors are starting to see these issues as really, um, you know, what they would say financially material to the business mm-hmm. results of the yeah. companies that they own. And so we are seeing more questions being asked um, on quarterly earnings calls. Um, which is interesting, you know, the sell side analysts are, are asking questions about the California drought, but, you know, it's still, um, it's still pretty easy for the CEOs and CFOs who are answering those questions to kind of squirm away. I mean, there was a, uh, a transcript I read the other day of a, of a large, uh, you know, food company that relies a lot on almonds in California. Uh, and, and they basically said, um, you know what? Uh, don't worry. We're putting in more wells. It's going to be fine. And you know, I think as you've, as you've uh, had your guests speak to before on the show, um, yeah. you know, this is an issue. It, it, you have to to really understand that the deeper wells are more expensive. The deeper wells are taking water away from farmers who can't go so deep, and those deeper wells are going to get regulated. So these, these are not these are short term. Uh, strategies yes. that are not addressing the bigger systemic risk, and, and investors have to ask a lot of hard follow-up questions on that. And you know, I think basically, you know, our message to the investors we work with is that, you know, the the end of cheap, plentiful water for the food sector, you know, getting to that tipping point, which is really where we are, this is going to fundamentally change what's realistic in terms of expectations for quarter-to-quarter growth. Um, and investors need to put that into their into how they value food companies and. And the companies themselves need to respond. They need to show the market that they are accounting for this and, you know, coming up with a lot more innovation in their supply chain and, and what their, um, you know, what their approach is going to be in bringing food to market. Absolutely. Well, one of the points, here's another quote from your um, from your report. As changes in precipitation patterns make water less plentiful in certain growing regions, farmers will adapt 
over the medium to long run by shifting crops or adopting new agricultural practices. And and as I've discussed with my friend Tom Philpot, who's been on this show many times from Mother Jones, um, are we talking about the decalifornication of of agricultural land? I mean, I think it's a fairly safe bet to say that. I mean, those almond farmers may think they can drill their way to prosperity, but in the long term, those aquifers are going to dry up, and those investments will be worth. Those orchards will die, and those investments will wither along with them. And and uh, but a lot of other crops can be transferred out to other parts of the comp- of the country, um, specifically the southeast, which gets much more precipitation, and and the and the mid Atlantic states, I would imagine. So, how, do you see a big shift in agriculture coming in the coming years as a result of this study? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think you're, you make an excellent point. We are we are looking at you know certainly the risk of some pretty big stranded agricultural assets in parts of California, and and I think it's fair. We're gonna we're, we should expect that California's agricultural output will be smaller going forward. Yeah. You know, it's been in non-drought years, um, and and but at the same time, I also think there's some there's some reasons to be hopeful. A lot of innovation I see coming out of this these really hard times that farmers are mm-hmm. experiencing in California. Um, and you know some some in, in, interesting examples too of of you know what I would say some corporate leadership on this, which was sort of surprising to see. Um, you know one one example that I, one story that I think has really been fascinating to watch is the story of Driscoll Berries. Um, uh-huh. you know, they're a California headquartered um, berry giant. They're they're around the world, but their headquarters and a lot of their production. Uh, is in the central coast of California near Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few years ago, um, and, and their berry production is almost everywhere and, and yeah, uh, yeah. definitely in, in that area de- dependent on groundwater. It's they, berries, strawberries and raspberries, they grow well in dry places with groundwater supply that, um, uh, you know, and that means that usually these groundwater aquifers aren't particularly um, uh, likely to get recharged on a regular basis and the drought yeah. just makes that worse. Right. Um, so a few years ago, the the chairman of um, Driscoll's, uh, Miles Ryder, who's you know also a, a farmer himself, you know, kind of saw that they're getting to a crisis point in the region, and that they're really all the farmers that were you know selling to his company were kind of in competition, you know, a, a downward spiral competition for groundwater, and mm-hmm. this really wasn't going to be a sustainable business model going forward, and and there needed to be, and at the same time, there had been. You know, lots of disagreement and um, tension and lawsuits between the farmers and regulators about the groundwater supply, uh, and really no common ground being found. So mm. this, the company, um, and really I think you know, inspired a lot by Miles' personal stake in this issue, um, helped to convene a group of NGOs and farmers and regulators in the valley, um, in the Pajaro Valley, which is the region there. They're headquartered in in California to say, you know, we actually have to all come together, right. come to the table. Um, we may all need to take a haircut here when it comes to water use. We all need to put some resources on the table, and we need to come up with a plan. And and so they've developed this thing called the um, uh, the the community water dialogue, where you know most of the big berry growers have have kind of agreed to to take on some new practices. Um, Driscoll's has um, a subsidized wireless information technology network across the whole valley so that um, a lot more real-time information on irrigation and allowing much more efficient irrigation to take place. Um, there's been, you know, a lot more reporting being asked of the, of the growers and a lot more accountability around the water use, mm-hmm. a lot better re- relationships with regulators coming. It's really a, a, you know, it sounds maybe straightforward and intuitive, but it's a huge success story in the context of California groundwater. And, and really the, the private sector played a catalytic role here um, in getting everyone to the table right. and kind of 
getting people to agree. And, and so, so while, you know, to your original question, are we, are we, you know, looking at the de-Californication of agriculture? Well, maybe we are, but I think we also have an opportunity here to innovate and to, to reset, and we're not going to be probably looking at as much production going forward. But there's a real opportunity for smarter production and for these supply chains to become more resilient, for farmers to do better, for water outcomes to be improved, you know, if, if we get the right people at the table. If we get the right people at the table, and 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 to go forward to 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 further pick at the irrigation issue, irrigation globally accounts for much of the agricultural use of water, right? That's around the world, especially in you know African, sub-Saharan uh, areas and so forth. But it's also notoriously inefficient and wasteful. So um, to build on some of those um, you know practices that the Driscoll uh, sort of example sets, are there are are other countries uh, also coming together around? Around water use and irrigation use, are there NGOs that are starting to try to guide some of these other countries into how to use irrigation more efficiently, or is that still somewhere in the distant future? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really great question. I mean, so just you know, just to, to lay the context, um, something like fifty fifty six percent of all the the food that's irrigated in, our, in the world is. Mm-hmm. Uh, facing extremely high water stress, so huge competition. Right. And basically, we're irrigating the deserts in, in a lot of a lot of places. Yeah, <laughs> um, and and that's really been seen as the you know a, a great way to build economic development and and bring you know high quality produce to market. But it's obviously in, in many places highly unsustainable. Yeah, um, and and you know there are there are more sustainable ways to irrigate. Um, you know, more efficient ways to irrigate. You know, it, it's also complex, right? You know, there's been a lot of discussion in the news about, oh my gosh, look, people are still flooding rice fields in California. That's so scandalous. How can you, how can you even imagine doing that in the drought? But, you know, you have to think about the fact that these flooded fields in California for rice are some of the only habitats that are available anymore for bird species that are migrating. The wetlands have been destroyed. So, so you know, irrigation and, you know, irrigation practices, good or bad, it's, it's a complex question. But I think the yes. bigger picture is you know, most food still around the world is dependent on rain. It's rain-fed agriculture. is still, you know, a little bit more than 50% or so of, of food production. And, you know, what we're, what we're tending to do is going for irrigation to help augment productivity of grain-fed. We're saying, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, you guys have been re- relying on the rain. It's, it's, you know, can't always rely on the rain. It's, it's, um, we've got climate change. We've got all these other factors that are making rain-fed agriculture more risky. So let's irrigate. Let's tap the groundwater. Let's tap the rivers. Um, that will give you more reliability. But, of course, that has a huge environmental impact. And there are so many things we can do with rain-fed agriculture to increase productivity. And so that's, you know, that's a big focus of our message with companies is thinking about, particularly in the developing world, right. how, can, how can agricultural practices be enhanced so we can get more out of rain-fed? Right. Soil management, water harvesting, there, there is so much to be done. And then I will say, you know, there are a lot of companies that are working, you know, within the context of agriculture that's already irrigated to help bring into play much more efficient subsurface drip and other kind of technologies. So, you know, General Mills in Mexico, um, they they have, a you know, their big green giant brand. They grow a lot of cauliflower and broccoli in the Irapato region of Mexico, and they've been very active for many years with their agronomists uh, helping the farmers that they source from um, bring bring in drip irrigation, um, giving them low interest loans so they can finance that irrigation technology. Right. You know, and it saves billions of, of gallons of water every year. Um, Campbell Soup is doing something, um, you know, somewhat similar. They're 
basically telling their their farmers in in um, California and elsewhere, you know, of tomatoes that you know we want to see water use per pound of tomato go down twenty percent by twenty twenty. Wow. Uh, really, the only way to do that is is with drip, and so you know they're they're really putting putting some. Um, you know, expectation to farmers that they they, they reinvest more in drip, um, and they're also you know trying to instigate this. And I think this is an important trend overall. They're really trying to motivate this by asking farmers to report on how much water they're using, and then they're giving the farmers information, um, you know, in an anonymous anonymous way about how all their neighbor, how much water their neighbors are using, how much fertilizer their neighbors are using. So so they're starting to create you know more transparency and insight in in their supply chain. That's you know fairly based on the, some of the conversations I've had with their growers, fairly motivating to the farmers themselves to see you know the guy next door is producing actually more than me with less water. How can I do that? Right, right. Um, yeah, huh, that sounds fascinating. You know, we should probably take a short break now. <laughs> uh, we'll have a sponsor drop, but uh, stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back with Brooke Barton from Series talking about water and food production, um, and we'll be back in just a second. Thanks. Brand new. This one is The Dregs on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking water and food production uh, as we move forward into the 21st century. My guest is Brooke Barton, the Senior Director of Water um, analysis, I guess, at Ceres, a nonprofit um, company that uh, that advises investors on what's good and what's bad. I don't know. I didn't do that very well, Brooke. I'm sorry. <laughs> risk analysts, right? That's what you guys yeah. are. You're risk analysts. Okay. So um, another thing in the report, I mean, to move forward a little bit from uh, irrigation, because um, this really rocked my world, was this statement. Only seven of the companies that you surveyed all of them in the packaged food and beverage sector acknowledged that access to drinking water and sanitation are fundamental human rights. So when you only <laughs> when you don't have everyone on board with recognizing that access to water uh, is a fundamental human right, um, then I, I think that you're you know that there is like uh, some uh, well what do I want to call it some reeducation necessary. <laughs> I don't know, Katie. I thought this was actually a good piece of data. I, I thought this was positive news <laughs> that we had seven companies. That there were seven um, out of the thirty-six, whatever. Yeah, seven of thirty-seven. Right. Yeah, no, guess, and, and no. Um, you know, it's 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 really an interesting um, area of inquiry when you when when you speak to companies about this issue. And you know, and just for a little bit of you know context for listeners. Um, you know, it, in a way, you know, this this idea is is obvious and um, shouldn't be surprising. But it's also from a kind of a legal perspective. It's it's a relatively new category of right. human rights that was voted on and passed by the UN General Assembly in 2010. And you know, it's a pretty big deal. And and the premise, you know, is that uh, of course 
Access to sufficient, safe, affordable water is a critical underpinning to human life. Everyone should have access to the minimum amount of water that they need to achieve that. Um, but also that, you know, governments are the fundamental um, entities that need to, to meet this obligation. Right. But companies are not immune, right? The companies have a responsibility to make sure that they are not um, infringing on this human right, that they right. do due diligence and look at how in their operations or in their supply chains and their contracts they could be potentially and, and maybe inadvertently and unknowingly, you know, affecting um, water and polluting water in ways that really that really does negatively impact communities and individuals. Um, and, you know, I think this, again, re- relates to the broader issue of, you know, license to grow um, for companies. You know, India has been a big example where, um, you know, there's been concerns about how beverage companies like Coca-Cola and PepsiCo may or may not be affecting local water supplies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and this isn't just, you know, some sort of, you know, legal mumbo-jumbo, the human right to water. It really is a reputational risk, this perception or this reality that, that companies are, are, you know, affecting this fundamental issue, this fundamental right. Um, but I think it's important to think about it in the agricultural context, though, too. I mean, and you don't need to look much further than our country in the right. Central Valley. You know, you've got a million people, uh, supposedly, you know, this has been reported by the, the state of California, over a million people whose groundwater and drinking supply is polluted by pesticides and nitrates from ag. And, yep. you know, for them, th- their human right to water is clearly being violated. And, yeah. you know, certainly the farm community, the ag community has to bear a uh, huge responsibility for this, and the governments need to get involved. But the companies that are buying from um, from these farmers need to be aware of this. Need to have uh, you know make it a, a real concerted effort to to reduce that impact and and think about what their role is. Well, I think it's really fascinating that, um, like for example, in the in the um, chicken industry and in the, to a certain extent in the hog industry, you know, they have that sort of contract farmer model now. The, they call it the chickenization of the, you know, livestock ag. And and in those cases, a contract farmer is going to own the waste. He ain't going to own the animal, but he's going to own the shit. And what they do with that shit, yes, there are EPA regulations that say what they can and cannot do with that shit. But the fact is, is that that's, you know, or the, the you know, if uh, somebody's field floods and you get a lot of nitrate fertilization running off into local streams and waters, you know, these are things that farmers, uh, I don't know, I feel like they get no support from the people that they contract with, like the overall corporate entity is not owning that responsibility uh, and somehow it just falls on the backs of the farmers and then ultimately on the backs of the taxpayers as it has, for example, in Des Moines, Iowa or Toledo, Ohio, both of which have had their municipal water quality uh, disastrously impacted by by um, by agriculture in the area. But I wanted to go further uh, because the, the really interesting question to me is like, say that an American company like Chiquita, Banana, which farms in Costa Rica and Panama, how much, like speaking internationally about rights to water and who owns water and how that's going to be managed going forward, how much will they be allowed to siphon off for their crops for which the local people do not make as, you know, all that money money off of, except as, as pickers, I suppose, or, you know, contract workers in the fields. Um, at what point will the government or can the government legally step in and say, okay, you know, we want to see how much water you're using. Uh, you're going to be allocated this much water per acre and no more. And, you know, and I, 
do you see where I'm going with this? It's like the yeah. international implications of of <clears throat> water regulation. I think are are a really um, important discussion for companies, especially as our food supply becomes more globalized. Um, wh- how do you see that playing out? Or conversely, in this country, like when JBS, a Brazilian company, is is contracting to buy Cargill pork, like are they going to own? I mean, how are we, are we're going to give them all of our water to maintain their pro- operation, and they're going to reap the profits from our natural resources? See what I'm saying? Like, I, yes. I, I think everyone has a stake in this. In that sense, you know, it's not just us going into other countries; it's other countries coming to us, buying up big companies that produce food here, and then walking away with you know whatever profit they make, and leaving us with the you know the dregs. <laughs> Right. Well, you know, I, I think it's a novel feeling for Americans to feel like we're becoming the banana republic of China, right? When it comes yeah. To agriculture. But, but the reality is this is, some, this is not a new uh, investment uh, strategy, right? I mean, no. but, you know, just first to, to your question to, uh, you know, the, the example in, in Panama or Costa Rica, I mean, you know, the, the fact is that you know, policymakers here, there, most places really share the, some of the same perspectives that company executives have that I think, you know, are, you know, are fundamentally mismatched to reality, which is, mm-hmm. you know, that water supplies are limitless and free, and they mm-hmm. are a resource for the taking, that they're renewable infinitely, and, and, or, or if they're not renewable, our time horizon is so short we don't really care, you know, yeah. and that's the same, you know, and, and so it really comes down to civil society and activists, yeah. you know, being watchdogs on these projects. And, you know, from where, where we sit at Ceres, it's really about making sure that investors understand the risks of strip mining uh, water supplies and, and that, you know, making sure that the smart capital focuses on, you know, investing in companies that have more sustainable objectives embedded in their sourcing plans. Um, you know, the question around... Um, you know, JBS and Smithfield and other companies that are definitely exporting, you know, at least virtually, um, you know, through feed and, and you know, animal yeah. uh, water consumption, you know, that, you know, you know, it's it's true. We're exporting a great deal of our water to feed other countries. And, you know, I, I think it's it's easy to, to get really... Um, uh, you know, it's hard for me to be very black and white about this because I think what's important for us also to recognize is that we are importing a lot of product in yes. return, like apparel, electronics that have in China horrible impacts on water. Yeah. They're you know poisoning people's water supplies. So uh, we're do all we're do we're all kind of doing this to each other. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we need to to make sure that we do have regulations. Um, you know that that ensure that we can approach agriculture in our country as we approach strip mining. We can't mortgage our future food security, uh, and we need to preserve the natural resource base. We we definitely need to realize, do that. I think exports are probably still compatible with that vision, but, you know, as it accelerates, we need to be much, much more diligent around that. Yes. and, and you know, the the reality is that meat um, is where the water is. You, you've got um, an industry that has a bigger water footprint than pretty much any other uh, because of all the grain um, yep. that is, is tied up with it, you know, and the amount of liters of water that are required to produce a calorie of meat versus a calorie of lentils or beans. It's 10 times that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just you're seeing just baby steps from companies. I mean, I think you know the one one example that we thought was interesting for coming out of the meat industry in the report was Smithfield Foods. They had you know kind of surprisingly set a goal um, to source the their, the grains that they feed to hogs, so mostly the corn that they're they're feeding their hogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that the number of the most of the acres that they're sourcing from are 
uh, you know, optimizing fertilizer use and improving soil health. So they have a, you know, kind of a water quality goal that they're they're right. trying to, to work through as a company, which is, again, it's not very big in terms of the scope of their full footprint. It's just starting out and doesn't address the contract issues that, you know, you talked about. Mm-hmm. But it's it's one little piece of movement, which I thought was pretty fascinating to see. Um but, you know, the, the vertical integration and the control in the meat sector is really astounding. What we didn't see, you know, not a single one of the companies in the meat sector really had um, anything to say about their expectations, like you said, uh, around the, <laughs> the, the waste that the, the, that the contract farmers are responsible for. You know, they dictate every other aspect of production. Yeah. But when it comes to managing manure, um, you know, uh, please, you know, please be a, a, in alignment with regulatory requirements. Well, we know those regulatory requirements are weak in most places. Yeah. So basically, they're taking no accountability at all, and that that really has to shift. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I should say that there are companies. I mean, when I when I went to toward a Cargill plant quite a few number of years ago now, um, out in. Um, Fort Collins, Colorado, they were very, very proud of their wastewater uh, management system. And they had, you know, anaerobic digesters, and they were returning their water to the Colorado River. And they considered themselves leaders uh, in that, you know, in having installed and, and invested in that technology. Um, but I, I I guess I don't get the feeling from your report that they, they went, that they, they sort of established this standard for this one plant, and it's not clear to me that it's um, going industry-wide, much less Cargill-wide, you know, or going Cargill-wide, much less industry-wide. So that um, that was sort of dismaying. I, I was hoping that more companies would have picked up, uh, just picked up on that concept, just because of how much water goes through the processing plant uh, is really really quite astonishing. Um, but your report also found that few companies, this is a quote, few companies are actively supporting reform of public policies that would result in more sustainable water management. And of course, right now we have the fantastic example of the the, reg- the EPA trying to, um, you know, for, uh, create these new uh, waters of the United States regulations, which um, address a lot of agricultural runoff issues and which have been fought tooth and nail uh, in every sector of ag. Um, and, you know, the the Congress has been all too happy to, to you know, say, sure, you guys, of course it should be business as usual. We're not going to do anything to rock your boats. Um, but do any of these congressional members have uh, any education whatsoever about some of these issues? I mean, do you get a sense of, you know, the, that, that lobbies are, lobbyists are, are telling them what they, what they want them to hear and then they don't get information from other sources? That's, that's sort of my sense of it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think without, without doubt that lobbyists are, um, have, have consummate uh, influence um, uh, on many of these, these sorts of regulations and, and issues in, in D.C. You know, and I, and I think your, what your question really gets to is, um, you know, for the companies, this, this notion that we talk about a lot of, of, you know, political alignment or misalignment. So, you know, there are, you know, a lot of companies in this study who make big claims about how they are wanting to be water stewards and they want to have sustainable practices in their supply chain. Yeah. Um, but it's fair game to ask them, okay, so you have these, these goals, these aspirations. Um, you know, how real is this when you think, like, how much are you investing in this? versus how much you're putting corporate resources into lobbying, 
directly, you yeah. know, your legislators on other kinds of policies that undermine these objectives, or just funneling a lot of money through trade associations. And, yeah. you know, the right hand often doesn't know what the left hand is doing, or the right hand can't control what the left hand is doing. And so a lot of the work that our investor partners do is really focused on, you know, raising this disconnect and saying, you know, this is a governance issue. This is a really risky to be claiming that you are, you know, seeking this kind of change in uh, on the ground in your supply chain, and then blabbing for the very things that, that disincentivize that. So, right. you know, that that's very, you know, fundamental problem. But I also think that there's some interesting, you know, small glimmers of hope in this space um, that, that we're tracking really carefully. So, you know, one example is in California, um, and kind of some interesting political shifts that are happening there um, with the food and beverage sector. You know, for years, California, of course, has been very polarized. Political context around reforming water management is just mm-hmm. grid- has been gridlocked, and it's fish versus farmers or cities versus enviros versus big ag, right. uh, and just no movement, right? Um, I mean, the drought is really shifting that dynamic. Um, and, and But, you know, for many years, the companies, the big food companies that were buying from California farmers, they tend to just line up with the Farm Bureau or the industry groups on any questions of these kinds. And, you know, while I think that's still largely the case, we, we, you know, we're seeing, um, you know, through, through some work we've been doing, uh, that there are now a number of large food companies, General Mills, uh, Driscoll's, Coca-Cola, uh, in coalition with a bigger group, uh, this initiative that's called Connect the Drops, Right. Um, they're coming out in favor of longer-term water management policies, including, you know, support for the recently enacted groundwater legislation. All these companies think it's critically important that the groundwater get protected so right. that they can maintain their supply chains. Um, and this is really unexpected uh, for a lot of legislators in California to be hearing hearing this. So, it, it, so we're seeing a little bit of a breakage with, the, you know, some cleavage with the traditional mm-hmm. uh, power groups. Um, and, you know, and the other thing I'd point out too. You know, to your listeners, uh, you know, and, and, and I think we, we should all be uh, health, have healthy skepticism on this piece. But I think, you know, it's also been very interesting to see that major food companies, um, even, you know, the likes of Cargill have been yeah. saying climate change is a huge risk yeah. to our business, and we need to do something about it. You've got Kellogg's, Nestle, Unilever, PepsiCo, Starbucks, all these companies saying, um, we are incredibly vulnerable if we continue on this path of high carbon emissions and, you know, no investment in renewable energy. We don't get a global deal. You know, our businesses are, are, are kaput. Like, we need, we need to do something about this. And so um, that's really counter to what their, you know, a lot of their uh, counterparts and a lot of other industries are doing in the U.S. right now. Um, so, again, it's, it's a small sign, I think, that there, there is some, some shifting happening in, in terms of how these companies see their political interests. Well, and, and their political interests, of, of course, are the, the interests that are, are, what going, are going to form our policy and our political interests going forward, because since most Americans don't vote and, <laughs> and don't really yeah. want to engage in the political process, well, then, you know, our corporate masters will continue to make decisions. So it's, in, it's encouraging to hear that some of the corporate masters are beginning to wake up, even though it's, um, you know, purely self-interested. Um, in the sense of maintaining the uh, profit margins that they have uh, enjoyed uh, yeah. hitherto. So please, everyone, do vote. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, it's just so critical. I mean, this, you know, there should be no election where people do not scrutinize the uh, 
you know, postures or the polling, uh, you know, uh, history of their wannabe elected representative representative on on issues of environmental uh, concerns or, uh, you know, social food and social justice. I mean, stuff like that. I mean, but especially this environmental stuff. It's like if your guy is not voting the right way on things like, you know, supporting the Waters of the United States Act. I mean, then that's not the person you want to vote for. You know, I don't care how much money it puts in your back pocket in the short term. So anyway, Brooke, we have to unfortunately let it go here, but I hope you'll come back uh, and talk to us again about water and water management and, and what things are happening in the corporate world, because really in the end, they're the guys who buy and sell these lackeys in Washington. I'm sorry. I, see, I can say that because I'm on Heritage Radio Network. I can say whatever I want about these guys. <laughs> I'm glad but, you do. But what we got down there is a bunch of lackeys and, uh, you know, jackanapes and people who are really essentially uneducated. I mean, I'm sorry, but politicians have become the uneducated population of this country. I don't know how that happened, but, you know, used to be the gentleman's profession. Now, if you know anything, you're considered an idiot. You know, it's like amazing, isn't it? Qualified. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I want you to promote series, tell people how they can learn more about uh, your work and your report and other reports like it. Um, where should they go? What should they look for? Yeah, please check us out at www.series.org, and you can also follow um, follow us at our Twitter handle, Value Every Drop. Value Every Drop, and Series, by the way, is not S E R I E S. It is Series, as in the Roman goddess of harvest, C E R E S. Um, thanks very much, Brooke. Really appreciate your time today, and thanks as always to my sponsor, Kane Winery, and to my engineer, Jack Insley. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 